Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're going to finish off the chapter from last week and have a little bit of a t- <laughs> and have a little bit to say about it after the episode too. So let's continue with the chapter. If the recognition afforded working women at the Seneca Falls meeting was all but negligible, there was not even a cursory mention of the rights of another group of women who also rebelled against the lives into which they were born. Footnote 34. In the South, they rebelled against slavery, and in the North, against the dubious condition of freedom called racism. While at least one black man was present among the Seneca Falls conferees, there was not a single black woman in attendance. Nor did the convention's documents make even a passing reference to black women. In light of the organizer's abolitionist involvement, it would seem puzzling that slave women were entirely disregarded. But this problem was not a new one. The Grimke sisters had previously criticized a number of female anti-slavery societies for ignoring the condition of black women and for sometimes manifesting blatantly racist prejudices. During the preparations for the founding convention of the National Female Anti-Slavery Society, Angelina Grimke had to take the initiative to guarantee more than a token presence of black women. Moreover, she suggested that a special address be delivered at that convention to the free black people of the North. Since no one, not even Lucretia Mott, would prepare the address, Angelina's sister Sarah had to deliver the speech. Footnote 35. As early as 1837, the Grimke sisters chastised the New York Female Anti-Slavery Society for failing to involve black women in their work. Quote, On account of their strong, aristocratical feelings, Angelina regretfully said, they were most exceedingly inefficient. We have had serious thought of forming an anti-slavery society among our colored sisters and getting them to invite their white friends to join them. In this way, we think we could get the most efficient white females in the city to join them. End quote. Footnote 36. The absence of black women at the Seneca Falls Convention was all the more conspicuous in light of their previous contribution to the fight for women's rights. More than a decade before this meeting, Maria Stewart had responded to attacks on her right to deliver public lectures by emphatically asking, What if I am a woman? Footnote 37. This black woman was the first native-born female lecturer who addressed audiences of both men and women. Footnote 38. And in 1827's Freedom's Journal, the first black newspaper in this country, published a black woman's letter on women's rights. Matilda, as she identified herself, demanded education for black women at a time when schooling for women was a controversial and quite unpopular issue. Her letter appeared in this pioneering New York journal the year before the Scottish-born Frances Wright began to lecture on equal education for women. Quote, I would address myself to all mothers and say to them that while it is necessary to possess a knowledge of pudding-making, something more is requisite. It is their bounden duty to store their daughters' minds with useful learning. They should be made to devote their leisure time to reading books, whence they would divide whence they would derive valuable information, which could never be taken from them. End quote. Footnote 39. Long before the first women's convention, middle-class white women had struggled for the right to education. Matilda's comments, later confirmed by the case, 
with which Prudence Crandall recruited black girls for her besieged school in Connecticut, demonstrated that white and black women were indeed united in their desire for education. Unfortunately, this connection was not acknowledged during the convention at Seneca Falls. The failure to recognize the potential for an integrated women's movement, particularly against sexism in education, was dramatically revealed in an episode occurring during the crucial summer of 1848. Ironically, it involved the daughter of Frederick Douglass. After her official admission to a girls' seminary in Rochester, New York, Douglas' daughter was formally prohibited from attending classes with the white girls. The principal who issued the order was an abolitionist woman. When Douglas and his wife protested this segregationist policy, the principal asked each white girl to vote on the issue, indicating that one objection would suffice to continue the exclusion. After the white girls voted in favor of integrating the classroom, the principal approached the girls' parents, using the one resulting objection as an excuse to exclude Douglas' daughter. Footnote 40. That a white woman associated with the anti-slavery movement could assume a racist posture towards a black girl in the North reflected a major weakness in the abolitionist campaign. Its failure to promote a broad anti-racist consciousness, this serious shortcoming, abundantly criticized by the Grimke sisters and others, was unfortunately carried over into the organized movement for women's rights. However oblivious the early women's rights activists may have been to the plight of their black sisters, the echoes of the new women's movement were felt throughout the organized black liberation struggle. As mentioned above, the National Convention of Colored Freedmen passed a resolution on the equality of women in 1848. Footnote 41. Upon Frederick Douglass' initiative, this Cleveland gathering had resolved that women should be elected delegates on an equal basis with men. Shortly thereafter, a convention of Negro people in Philadelphia not only invited black women to participate, but in recognition of the new movement launched in Seneca Falls, also asked white women to join them. Lucretia Mott described her decision to attend in a letter to Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Quote, we are now in the midst of a convention of the colored people of the city. Douglas and Delaney, Redmond and Garnet are here, all taking an active part. And as they include women, and white women too, I can do no less, with the interest I feel in the cause of the slave, as well as of woman, than be present and take a little part. So yesterday, in a pouring rain, Sarah Pugh and Self walked down there, and expect to do the same today. End quote. Footnote 42. Two years after the Seneca Falls Convention, the first National Convention on Women's Rights was held in Worcester, Massachusetts. Whether she was actually invited or came on her own initiative, Sojourner Truth was among the participants. Her presence there and the speeches she delivered at subsequent women's rights meetings symbolized black women's solidarity with the new cause. They aspired to be free, not only from racist oppression, but also from sexist domination. Ain't I a woman? Footnote 43. The refrain of the speech Sojourner Truth delivered at an 1851 women's convention in Akron, Ohio, remains one of the most frequently quoted slogans of the 19th century women's movement. Sojourner Truth single-handedly rescued the Akron women's meeting from the disruptive jeers of hostile men. Of all the women attending the gathering, she alone was able to answer aggressively the male supremacist arguments of the boisterous provocateurs. 
possessing an undeniable charisma and powerful oratorical abilities, Sojourner Truth tore down the claims that female weakness was incompatible with suffrage. And she did this with irrefutable logic. The leader of the provocateurs had argued that it was ridiculous for women to desire the vote, since they could not even walk over a puddle or get into a carriage without the help of a man. Sojourner Truth pointed out with compelling simplicity that she herself had never been helped over mud puddles or into carriages. And ain't I a woman? With a voice like rolling thunder, footnote 44, she said, look at me, look at my arm, and rolled up her sleeve to reveal the tremendous muscular power of her arm, footnote 45, quote, I have ploughed and planted and gathered into barns, and no man could head me, and ain't I a woman. I could work as much and eat as much as a man, when I could get it, and bear the lash so well, and ain't I a woman. I have borne thirteen children and seen them most all sold off to slavery, and when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me, and ain't I a woman. End quote. Footnote 46. As the only black woman attending the Akron convention, Sojourner Truth had done what not one of her timid white sisters was capable of doing. According to the chairperson, there were very few women in those days who dared to speak in meeting. Having powerfully pleaded the cause of her sex, having commanded the attention of the white women as well as their disruptive male adversaries, Sojourner Truth was spontaneously applauded as the hero of the day. She had not only dealt a crushing defeat to the men's weaker sex argument, but had also refuted their thesis that male supremacy was a Christian principle, since Christ himself was a man. Quote, That little man in black there, he says women can't have as much rights as men, because Christ wasn't a woman. Where did Christ come from? End quote. Footnote 47. According to the presiding officer, Rolling Thunder couldn't have stilled that crowd, as did those deep wonderful tones, as she stood there with outstretched arms and eyes of fire. Footnote 48. Quote, Where did your Christ come from? From God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with him. End quote. Footnote 49. As for the horrendous sin committed by Eve, this was hardly an argument against women's capabilities. On the contrary, it was an enormous plus. Quote, if the first woman God ever made was strong enough to turn the world upside down all alone, these women together ought to be able to get it right side up again. And now they're asking to do it. The men better let them. End quote. Footnote 50. The men's belligerence was quieted and the women were bursting with pride, their hearts beating with gratitude, and more than one of us with streaming eyes. Footnote 51. Frances Dana Gage the presiding officer of the Akron Convention, continued her description of the impact of Sojourner Truth's speech. Quote, she had taken us up in her strong arms and carried us safely over the slough of difficulty, turning the whole tide in our favor. I have never in my life seen anything like the magical influence that subdued the mobbish spirit of the day and turned the sneers and jeers of an excited crowd into notes of respect and admiration. End quote. Footnote 52. Sojourner Truth's Ain't I a Woman address had deeper implications, for it was also, it seems, a comment on the racist attitudes of the same white women who later praised their black sister. Not a few of the Akron women had been initially opposed to a black woman having a voice in their convention, and the anti-women's writers had tried to take advantage of this racism. 
in the words of Francis Dana Gage, quote, The leaders of the movement trembled on seeing a tall, gaunt black woman in a grey dress and white turban, surmounted with an uncouth sunbonnet, march deliberately into the church, walk with the air of a queen up the aisle, and take her seat upon the pulpit steps. A buzz of disapprobation was heard all over the house, and then fell on the listening ear. An abolition affair. I told you so. Go it, darkie. End quote. Footnote 53. On the second day of the convention, when Sojourner Truth rose to answer the male supremacist assault, leading white women attempted to persuade Gage to prevent her from speaking. Quote, Don't let her speak, gasped half a dozen in my ear. She moved slowly and solemnly to the front laid her old bonnet at her feet, and turned her great speaking eyes to me. There was a hissing sound of disapprobation above and below. I rose and announced, Sojourner Truth, and begged the audience to keep silent for a few moments. End quote. Footnote 54. Fortunately for the Ohio women, for the women's movement in general, for whom Sojourner's Truth speech established a militant fighting spirit, and for us today who still receive inspiration from her words, Frances Dana Gage did not succumb to these racist pressures of her comrades. When this black woman did rise to speak, her answer to the male supremacists also contained a profound lesson for the white women. In repeating her question, Ain't I a woman, no less than four times, she exposed the class bias and racism of the new women's movement. All women were not white, and all women did not enjoy the material comfort of the middle classes and the bourgeoisie. Sojourner Truth herself was black, she was an ex-slave, but she was no less a woman than any of her white sisters at the convention. That her race and her economic condition were different from theirs did not annul her womanhood, and as a black woman, her claim to equal rights was no less legitimate than that of white middle-class women. At a national women's convention, two years later, she was still fighting efforts to prevent her from speaking. Quote, I know that it feels like a kind of hissing and tickling-like to see a colored woman get up and tell you about things and women's rights. We have all been thrown down so low that nobody thought we'd ever get up here again. But we have been long enough trodden now. We will come up again. And now I am here. End quote. Footnote 55. Throughout the 1850s, local and national conventions attracted increasing numbers of women to the campaign for equality. It was never an unusual occurrence for Sojourner Truth to appear at these meetings, and despite inevitable hostility to rise and have her say in representing her black sisters, both slave and free, she imparted a fighting spirit to the campaign for women's rights. This was Sojourner Truth's unique historical contribution, and in case white women tended to forget that black women were no less women than they, her presence and her speeches served as a constant reminder. Black women were also going to get their rights. Meanwhile, large numbers of black women were manifesting their commitment to freedom and equality in ways that were less closely connected with the newly organized women's movement. The Underground Railroad claimed the energies of numerous northern black women. Jane Lewis, for example, a resident of New Lebanon, Ohio, regularly rowed her boat across the Ohio River, rescuing many a fugitive slave. Footnote 56. Frances E. W. Harper, a dedicated feminist and the most popular black poet at mid-century, was one of the most active lecturers associated with the anti-slavery movement. Charlotte Fortin, 
who became a leading black educator during the post-Civil War period, was likewise an active abolitionist. Sarah Redmond, who lectured against slavery in England, Ireland, and Scotland, exercised a vast influence on public opinion, and according to one historian, kept the Tories from intervening on the side of the Confederacy. Footnote 57. Even the most radical white abolitionists, basing their opposition to slavery on moral and humanitarian grounds, failed to understand that the rapidly developing capitalism of the North was also an an oppressive system. They viewed slavery as a detestable and inhuman institution, an archaic transgression of justice. But they did not recognize that the white worker in the North, his or her status as free laborer notwithstanding, was no different from the enslaved worker in the South. Both were victims of economic exploitation. As militant as William Lloyd Garrison is supposed to have been, he was vehemently against wage laborers' right to organize. The inaugural issue of the Liberator included an article denouncing the efforts of Boston workers to form a political party. Quote, an attempt has been made, it is still in the making, we regret to say, to inflame the minds of our working classes against the more opulent, and to persuade men that they are condemned and oppressed by a wealthy aristocracy. It is in the highest degree criminal, therefore, to exasperate our mechanics to deeds of violence, or to array them under a party banner. End quote. Footnote 58. As a rule, white abolitionists either defended the industrial capitalists or expressed no conscious class loyalty at all. This unquestioning acceptance of the capitalist economic system was evident in the program of the women's rights movement as well. If most abolitionists viewed slavery as a nasty blemish which needed to be eliminated, most women's writers viewed male supremacy in a similar manner, as an immoral flaw in their otherwise acceptable society. The leaders of the women's rights movement did not suspect that the enslavement of black people in the South, the economic exploitation of northern workers, and the social oppression of women might be systematically related. Within the early women's movement, little was said about white working people not even about white women workers. Though many of the women were supporters of the abolitionist campaign, they failed to integrate their anti-slavery consciousness into their analysis of women's oppression. At the outbreak of the Civil War, the women's rights leaders were persuaded to redirect their energies toward a defense of the Union cause, but in suspending their agitation for sexual equality, they learned how deeply racism had planted itself in the soil of US society. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Lucretia Mott, and Susan B. Anthony traveled throughout the state of New York, delivering pro-union lectures demanding immediate and unconstitutional emancipation. Footnote 59, quote, And they received the roughest treatment of their lives at the hands of aroused mobs in every city, where they stopped between Buffalo and Albany. In Syracuse, the hall was invaded by a crowd of men brandishing knives and pistols. End quote. Footnote 60. If they had not previously recognized that the South held no monopoly on racism, their experiences as agitators for the Union cause should have taught them that there was indeed racism in the North and that it could be brutal. When the military draft was instituted in the North, large-scale riots in major urban centers were fomented by pro-slavery forces. They brought violence and death to the free black population. In July 1863, Mobs in New York City, quote, destroyed the recruiting stations, set fire to an armory, 
attacked the Tribune and prominent Republicans, burned a Negro orphan asylum, and generally created chaos throughout the city. The mobs directed their fury especially against the Negroes, assailing them wherever found. Many were murdered. It is calculated that some 1,000 people were killed and wounded. End quote. Footnote 61. If the degree to which the North itself was infected with racism had formerly gone unrecognized, the mob violence of 1863 demonstrated that anti-black sentiment was deep and widespread and potentially murderous. If the South had a monopoly on slavery, it was certainly not alone in its sponsorship of racism. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony had agreed with the radical abolitionists that the Civil War could be hastily ended by emancipating the slaves and recruiting them into the Union Army. They attempted to rally the masses of women to their position by issuing a call to organize a Women's Loyal League. At the founding meeting, hundreds of women agreed to promote the war effort by circulating petitions demanding the emancipation of the slaves. They were not so unanimous, however. In their response to Susan B. Anthony's resolution, linking the rights of women to the liberation of black people. The proposed resolution stated that there could never be a true peace in this republic until the civil and political rights of all citizens of African descent and all women are practically established. Footnote 62. Unfortunately, in light of the post-war developments, it appears that this resolution may have been motivated by the fear that white women might be left behind when the slaves emerged into the light of freedom. But Angelina Grimke proposed a principled defense of the unity between black liberation and women's liberation. Quote, I want to be identified with the Negro, she insisted. Until he gets his rights, we shall never have ours. Footnote 63. I rejoice exceedingly that the resolution should combine us with the Negro. I feel that we have been with him, that the iron has entered into our souls. True, we have not felt the slaveholders lash. True, we have not had our hands manacled, but our hearts have been crushed. End quote. Footnote 64. At this founding convention of the Women's Loyal League, to which all the veterans of the abolitionist campaign and the women's rights movement were invited, Angelina Grimke characteristically proposed the most advanced interpretation of the war she described as our second revolution. Footnote 65. Quote, the war is not, as the South falsely pretends, a war of races, nor of sections, nor of political parties, but a war of principles, a war upon the working classes, whether white or black. In this war, the black man was the first victim, the working man of whatever color, the next, and now all who contend for the rights of labor, for free speech, free schools, free suffrage, and a free government, are driven to do battle in defense of these, or to fall with them, victims of the same violence that for two centuries has held the black man a prisoner of war. While the South has waged this war against human rights, the North has stood by, holding the garments of those who were stoning liberty to death. The nation is in a death struggle. It must either become one vast slaveocracy of petty tyrants, or wholly the land of the free. End quote. Footnote 66. Angelina Grimke's brilliant address to the soldiers of our second revolution demonstrated that her political consciousness was far more advanced than most of her contemporaries. In her speech, she proposed a radical theory and practice which could have been realized 
through an alliance of embracing labor, black people, and women. If, as Karl Marx said, labor in a white skin can never be free as long as labor in a black skin is branded, it was also true, as Angelina Grimke lucidly insisted, that the democratic struggles of the times, especially the fight for women's equality, could be most effectively waged in association with the struggle for black liberation. And that concludes this chapter. That's a hell of a chapter. I love the story of Sojourner Truth. She sounds incredible and is a yet again a perfect example of the value of intersectionality. It is not purely because you have a duty to, say, uphold the black woman. It's that also the black woman's going to have perspective and value that like, no, none of those white women in those meetings had. She had her tremendously powerful arms as a rhetorical tool no other woman there had. I quite honestly couldn't give a lot of like good analysis on this beyond just, it's an incredibly good story. I can at least uh, yet again address those white women did not know what they had when they're worried about her coming up to talk and she's single-handedly saving them from hecklers is just a perfect encapsulation of what the thrust of the book is like at the current moment. As it's dealing with this specific intersection of black women and also the way in which the working class is being ignored because... You're dealing with white women who are really focused on specific issues, but think society is broadly doing fine. Like, once we deal with the slavery thing, once we deal with the fact that women are being oppressed, everything will be okay. It's not like these disparities are coming from fundamental issues with kind of hierarchical power structures societies imposing on people. No, it's just that these mistakes have been made and need to be rectified. Anyway, shoutouts to Sojourner Truth. But that's all I have to say on this chapter. If you would like to get in contact with the show, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or get the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This podcast is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can find lots of other leftist podcasts about video games, books, movies, anime at abnormalmapping.com. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on sandimage.org. But that's all for this week. Thank you for listening and keep reading.